This morning we're going to be reading from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 8, verses 27 through 38, if you'd like to follow along. To our visitors, I just want to share with you that our church is going through a book um, for, since January, the first Sunday in January, we've been reading from The Story, which is God's story arranged as, as a continuous story for His people. And so the two authors have taken the, the Bible and have written it as a novel, or arranged it really. They've taken the scripture and arranged it as a novel, so it reads like a novel. Um, and so our church has been doing this since the first Sunday in January. Um, and so I'm going to be reading from that. This morning, but the corresponding passages in the Pew Bible comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 8, verses 27 through 38. If you're interested in, in looking at a copy of the story or picking one up, I invite you to speak to our Christian ed director, who's sitting in the wrong place, um, because she's right here normally. Okay. Um, we'd be happy to get you one or help you to, to connect with one if, if you'd like to read it. Um, the interesting thing in the comments I've heard is that it's been a great way for all of us to read the Bible without getting uh, distracted or lost in the parts where it gets very monotonous. Um, it reads well and they cut portions out and just kind of paraphrase it with a paragraph. So then you get the major stories of the Bible and of God's relationship with His people. I invite you to hear now... Um, what I'll be reading, which comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 8, it's on page 353, if people have their copies of the story and they'd like to follow along. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do the people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked. Who do you say I am? Peter answered, You are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Over the past few weeks, we've been reading and looking at the ministry of Jesus from the birth and the beginning of, of his story, and then the beginning of his ministry, and then people beginning to recognize who he really was, or beginning to think about what he was saying as he was teaching and performing miracles and doing the things that he was doing. 
This morning we read a question that Jesus himself is posing to the disciples. A question that you and I have pondered the past two weeks. As we've asked the question of ourselves, who is Jesus? And then today we hear and we receive Jesus asking it to those that are gathered with him. As he asks them, who do the people say that I am? Who do the people say that I am? It's almost like Jesus is asking us that question ourselves as we think of his life and his ministry and his death and his resurrection. What do you hear others saying about me, he says. Jesus has posed this question to the disciples in the area of Caesarea Philippi. On this map, it's not marked with a dot or anything, but it's basically to the southern portion of where that blue arrow is, if you'd like to look. It's roughly 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. Caesarea Philippi was a region. It wasn't necessarily a part of the region of Israel at the time. And so Jesus is is in a little outlying community with the disciples. And in fact, if you look in the Gospels, this is the farthest north that Jesus travels that they have recorded. Caesarea Philippi is significant. It's located in the region of Mount Hermon, which is a major mountain in the Old Testament and new and in the region of Israel. It's significant because there's a very large spring that that lets forth an amazing amount of water that's one of the major springs that feeds the Jordan River. But I think it's interesting that Jesus poses this type of question to the disciples in this place. He's not in Jerusalem. He's not in the temple. They're not in a synagogue. They're not in in Capernaum or Cana or Nazareth or any of the other communities that Jesus is associated and we know he taught at. Jesus poses this question in a different place. In a place that, that should, I think, have some significance for us. As we think about it, and as we ponder this scripture this morning. See, Caesarea Philippi was not exactly a major hotbed of Jewish thought and religion in those times, or even today. In the Old Testament, it was referred to as Baal Hermon. Baal being, you know, the name of of an idol, another god that the people of Israel worshipped at that time. It was also known as Baal Gad. And so it was an area that was associated with worship of other gods. In the Old Testament. And in Jesus' time that had continued. And even after Jesus' time in the New Testament. We read about Paul writing about Philippi. And visiting Philippi. And presenting the gospel truth of Jesus Christ in this area. In fact Philippi was known more for the spring. And the abundant water that came from it. Than anything else. And then it's second uh, I guess being its second area of being known were for the many temples that had been built there in the area temples that had been built to worship other gods to honor other gods the most notable one would be the greek god pan there in caesarea philippi in the region right outside where the spring came out of a cave at the base of mount hermon There was a temple to Pan with niches carved in the rocks where people had placed little statues and objects that they would come and worship. And there they would throw their sacrifices into the cave in order to to appease the God. So why did Jesus pick this place? To ask the disciples this important question, this place that is about as far from the God of Israel in anywhere in the region as he could find. 
It's a place dedicated for worship of another God. It's a place dedicated to, to worship and doing other things. And yet it's there that Jesus takes the disciples out of his homeland, out of his home territory to ask them this question. Why did he choose to ask here? Why did he choose to enter into a conversation of who he was in a region that was known for this thing? See, I think he did it because the disciples were wide-eyed to the knowledge of the other gods that were worshipped in that place. Maybe he did it because he knew that, that they were already thinking about what others believed and professed when they looked at him and when they compared the Jesus of Nazareth and the message that he was proclaiming to other things that they had heard. Or maybe it was just time. Maybe it was time that Jesus felt like they could get away and he could ask them those questions in order to see what they believed and in order to see what others were professing and saying about him. As he's checking to see what they were understanding. What they understood about who he was. What they understood about, about what he was about. As they answered the question, who do the people say I am? Mark writes that Jesus asks the question and the disciples answer. Some say, well, you're the John the Baptist. John the Baptist has been killed. He's been beheaded. His ministry was fruitful. He pointed a lot of people's eyes to Jesus and the one that was coming. But some still looked to John and thought that he was supposed to be more. Some of the disciples said that, that some say you're Elijah. Probably one of the greatest prophets of Israel. A couple of months ago we read the, the story in 1 Kings of how Elijah uh, faced down the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. With Ahab, King Ahab and Jezebel. And others they said, well you're just another prophet. And then Jesus asks the big question. Well who do you say I am? Who do you say I am? Not anyone else. Not what other people are saying. Not what you're hearing. But you. Who do you say I am? And Peter's answer is simply, you are the Messiah. Jesus tells the disciples that they're not to tell anyone that he's the Messiah. And then he continues to teach them and say, you know, the Messiah is going to come and he's going to suffer. He's going to be rejected. He's going to be betrayed. He must be killed. And after three days, he is going to rise again. And that's not the Messiah that some of the disciples were looking for. They weren't looking for a Messiah that was there to suffer and be betrayed and be killed. They were looking for a Messiah that was coming to do something else. In fact, if you go and read in the Old Testament, there are two understandings of the Messiah. Two kind of threads that, that if you follow them through the Old Testament, you can see two different beliefs or understandings of what the Messiah is supposed to do. One understanding is the one that Jesus shared about this, the Messiah being a suffering servant. About someone who was going to come being sent by God in order to offer himself to death so that he could live again. The second and obviously I think the reason or the, the understanding that Peter wanted was the Messiah who was going to reestablish the kingdom of David. To reestablish the kingship of David by leading a mighty army, by restoring the kingdom. 
This is the same interpretation of the understanding of the Messiah that we read about in Mark chapter 11 verses 1 through 11. Which is Jesus' entry to the city of Jerusalem. It's the text that we commonly read on Palm Sunday when Jesus enters the city. He enters victoriously. He enters on a colt. The crowds place palms, which symbolizes victory to them in the road. They shout, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They take that text or that that phrase directly from the book of Zechariah, which says that one's going to come and he's going to enter the city of Jerusalem victoriously and people are going to acclaim him and profess him and celebrate him. See, that's the Messiah that they were looking for. And so when Peter pulls Jesus over to rebuke him, I don't know what we want to say by rebuke. I don't know what your understanding is of Peter rebuking him. See, I see him pulling him over and saying, now what do you mean about this? Because this is the Messiah that we were looking for. And and your, your description of Messiah is not the one that we were anticipating. Yet Jesus tells Peter that he has in his mind only the things of man and not the things of God. Peter's thinking of God's plan according to how he sees it. Peter isn't thinking of God's plan in in sending his son to, to regain relationship with his creation. Peter's thinking of what he wants, of what he's anticipating, of what he is assuming is going to happen. And really Peter's putting into words what many in Israel were hoping would happen. Is that the Messiah would come. And that Rome would be conquered. And that the reign and kingship of David would be reestablished. And that the walls of Jerusalem would be solid. And the city would be looked to as a city of glory and a place of power and everything else you can imagine. Because see, Peter was thinking of what he wants. He was thinking of what he assumed was going to happen. He was placing his assumption of how God was going to work before he actually understood of what God was trying to do through Jesus Christ. Peter placed his assumptions on Jesus. Assumptions of how God was going to work. Assumptions of what Jesus had come to do. Assumptions of what it meant for Jesus to be a Messiah. And Jesus simply says... Your thoughts are not of God. Your thoughts are of your own. You're assuming how I'm going to work. You're anticipating how I'm going to, where I'm going to go before I even gone, I've even gone there. You need to wait. You need to listen. You need to allow God to reveal Himself to you. So that you can go and do and be And act in the way that I'm training you to be. A disciple of mine. See, because as Jesus is talking to the disciples, what he's telling them is he came to fulfill the scripture. That he came to enact and fulfill the plan of God to restore relationship with his people. Not to fulfill what Peter and the other disciples and the crowds were looking for and anticipating. But he was coming to accomplish God's plan. 
Which meant using the cross to break down our relationship with God. To break down the barriers that inhibit us from truly worshiping God and knowing God and being used from, by God. See, in Peter's mind, he was looking for something so different. He was looking for Jesus to establish order and, and, and a kingdom and, and things that they imagined. But in God's plan, all it was going to take was the cross. To offer you life and to offer me life. To give us the opportunity once again to know that we are forgiven. To know that we can approach God as His children. As His sons and daughters who have received the gift of grace and life from Him before we've ever asked for it. Yet all it takes is us recognizing it. See, on the fourth day of vacation Bible school, our Bible story time that night was Jesus in His final week and His offering Himself and of how He had to trust in God to stand strong. The imagery that the children provided us was their hands with their name written on them, written upon it stuck to the cross. Because what we learned that night is that it was God's plan to break down the barrier between us and Him through His Son, Jesus Christ. And then in Jesus, God allows us to stand strong in who we are and in who He calls us to be as we're made disciples. As we seek and strive to be created and perfected in His image. And as we seek to share this gift of grace and life that He's given us. See, if we look at the story of Christ with our mind, it doesn't make sense. But if we look at the story of Christ and as we see it and know that it's God's plan, then it makes perfect sense. Because it's life, it's forgiveness, it's a wholeness and newness of relationship that we wouldn't have otherwise. And it's because of the cross that Christ offered himself to us so that you and I could approach God once again and know that we're accepted and know that we're forgiven and know that we are loved. Amen.